This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Has confidence in our universities eroded? Is the price for making people feel included, making universities inhospitable to controversial ideas? Have we become too politically correct, not politically correct enough? And most critically, have our colleges become political institutions rather than institutions creating lifelong learners willing to engage in honest debate and equipped to effectively navigate in a heterogeneous world. Michael Roth, in his new book, Safe Enough Spaces, a pragmatist's approach to inclusion, free speech, and political correctness on college campuses, answers these questions and more. His book presents a much-needed template for honest conversations, and he grounds these provocative topics in reality versus hype, and characterizes a path forward for our universities to fulfill their mission of developing self-awareness, subtlety of thought, and openness to the possibility of learning from others. Michael is very equipped to address these questions, bringing his experience as an almost 20-year president of Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, his education as a historian, his role as a professor, and most profoundly, his lifelong work in advocacy for liberal education. Michael, welcome to Wesley and R.J. Julia's and Just the Right Book. Thank you very much, Roxanne. <laughs> it's great to be here. So, Michael, we're going to get to all the obvious topics like free speech and political correctness and affirmative uh, action, inclusion, and, of course, safe spaces. But you've written six books before this one. Why this book now? Well, uh, my, my scholarly interests have been in how people make sense of the past. And the uh, first uh, several books were either in the history of philosophy or history of psychology, and sometimes around issues in political theory about how writers and um, teachers, thinkers, uh, understand the role of memory and um, and and repression and trauma and uh, uh, several years ago um, into my tenure uh, at, at at Wesleyan and I've I've been a college president for almost twenty years but only only twelve of them have been at, at Wesleyan. Um, I, several years ago, I started thinking that uh, it would be important to to make a defense of of liberal education to talk about why liberal education, uh, although it might be beleaguered from some perspectives uh, in our contemporary society, and especially in the wake of the Great Recession of 2008, uh, there were lots of questions about the vi viability of traditional American higher education. I decided to write a book then uh, beyond the university that defended liberal education and, and to articulate what I call uh, the American view, which is uh, pragmatic liberal education, and, and that it was not a choice between of uh, the kind of learning that you did if you didn't have to work uh, uh, and or work, but the choice was between an education that was broad and a resource for lifelong learning uh, and training that treated you like a machine. And 
I um, defended the former and and tried to show historically in the United States how that uh, view of liberal education developed uh, through some key thinkers. And then uh, in the wake of that, I got more involved in debates about colleges and noticed that there was just this cascade of writers and pundits who were uh, rolling their eyes uh, on the page, I guess, about college students today, about the problems of universities, about closed-mindedness, about political correctness, that there were these critiques that just went on and on. And I do a lot of book reviewing, and sometimes I was called upon to review these books. And at some point, I thought, uh, maybe I'd just pull all these reviews together. And then uh, an editor at another press, actually, at Princeton, said, you know, what we really need is you to write a book stating how your rejection of these complaints about higher education hangs together. And so I, I was thinking about the, a, a book under the title Different Diversities, uh, uh, about the, the different ways intellectual diversity works, about inclusion. And, um, and so as I started to write that book, I realized what I was really talking about was a, uh, a place that didn't protect people too much, but gave them enough safety uh, to allow them to be adventurous in their thinking, uh, broad-minded, open-hearted, um, and, and capable of learning. Um, and then um, uh, I, I was thinking of the, the old psychoanalytic term, a good enough parent is a, a parent that didn't make you crazy, uh, that, that, that it would be a safe, <laughs> enough, a safe enough space. And um, uh, Kari Weil, my wife who teaches uh, at Wesleyan and is here tonight, she said, that should be your title. You know, this other stuff doesn't really work so well. And so... Um, uh, the Yale Press people um, uh, agreed, and so uh, Safe Enough Spaces came together as really a way of pushing back against what I think of as the tradition from Alan Bloom to the present of people um, trying to write books that would sell to middle-aged people because they complained about young people. Okay, so there's a lot of ways we can go yes. from, from that, but let's start with the notion of free speech. Right, because you rarely run into someone who says they're against free speech. It's how they define yeah. free speech. So in the book, you use a term, um, which I'd like you to elaborate on, which is which actions count as speech to be protected and which count as actions with consequences that should be avoided or prohibited, and how do you figure that out? Yeah, it's, it, this is <laughs> this has been a topic in 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 American legal history uh, that's uh, from time to time gets an enormous amount of attention. In the last couple of decades, it has gotten a, a tremendous amount of attention as the Supreme Court, in particular, has adopted a libertarian approach to free speech. Uh, there was a time in which protected speech was thought to be um, political speech, uh, and 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 the boundaries of protection expanded to certainly artistic expression. Uh, but, uh, for example, in the Citizens United case, uh, the, the, the free speech was uh, defined so as to include uh, corporate spending on elections. So the reason that you mm. couldn't restrict corporate spending on elections is because that that corporate spending on elections was an ex was a mode of free speech that, that the court decided was to be protected. Uh, other kinds of uh, actions uh, uh, could be seen as assaultive, uh, but if you define them not as an assault, but as an expression, then they seem to get some kind of uh, consideration 
uh, under the realm of, of uh, free speech. You can well imagine uh, someone producing on a laser printer. You all have seen these uh, laser printers now that you can make anything. You can make a little bicycle that runs and everything like that. You can imagine an artist producing something let's say quasi obscene on a laser printer and and someone like me saying you can't show that at Wesleyan in the gallery and they said no but freedom of expression freedom of expression i have produced this what you roth in your prudish ways think is obscene but it's my expression and i would say oh gosh i guess that is expression what if they produce a working gun hmm. It, it, that shoots um, people or other things. You know, and they say, well, you don't like guns, Roth, but that's your problem. It's my expression. So the, the boundaries of speech always get defined by someone. People, even the free speech absolutists, uh, at some point will say, well, I'm not going to protect uh, child pornography uh, or I'm not going to protect uh, someone yelling uh, fire in a crowded bookstore. Um, so there's always a limitation. And so... But I argue in this chapter about free speech and safe enough spaces is that at colleges and universities, we are always making judgments about what kinds of speech are educational for our students. Um, and we should err on the side of breadth, of opening up our minds and, and our thinking to new kinds of expression that might be educative. But it doesn't mean we have to um, open our minds so much that our brains fall out and we can't make any judgments. We make judgments all the time. So... What I've argued in the book is that the open market, free market approach to speech, that the more speech you have, the better you'll be, is really inadequate, and it's not what, how universities work. We want a certain kind of speech that, about which we need to make judgments, and those are moral judgments, educational judgments, and political judgments. So a lot of the hype that's been around free speech in colleges is the contention that Colleges are actually becoming very uninterested in free speech. They're much more interested in speech that's their point of view. And you've been very public about uh, what's been referred to as affirmative action for conservatives and feel like that needs to be brought to campus. But why do you think there's so much buzz around the fact that oh, these kids are just being ridiculous, they're being coddled, they're standing up for things because they don't, you know, they, they don't want to hear it. It reminds me of like when you're little kids and you don't want to hear something, you put your hands over, you go, yeah, 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 I don't want to hear that. So how, why do you think that's such common currency? And how do you, and if it is true, how do you think that's going to move forward? I mean, uh, University of Chicago's had a way of dealing with it. Vassar's had a way. Middlebury dealt with it one way. Franklin Marshall, another. So elaborate on all that for us. Sure. Uh, I think that the um, the tendency of, of uh, older people to look at college campuses and be bewildered what goes on there is a, it's got a long history. It goes back at least to the founding of the United States in this country, where Thomas Jefferson would get notices uh, from people at the University of Virginia that the students are drunk again and they're attacking the European professors. And, and, uh, and he tried to figure out what to do about um, the boisterous uh, and exuberant nature of the students at the University of Virginia. Um, and so on through the history of education in the United States, 
there is often um, uh, a, a song that 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 commentators sing that those kids today um, are uh, doing things that we would never have done, and the country's going to go to hell in a handbasket because uh, of the way young people are acting today. And you saw it in the '60s, and it was blamed on Benjamin Spock, and Alan Bloom blamed rock and roll music and historicism, and and so on and so on. I think it's just the nature of some people. Um, as they reach a certain age, to find other people in their group to uh, open to criticizing college students, I, I think college students today have uh, certainly their views of free speech have changed from 20, 30 years ago. Studies show that they are less supportive of absolute approach or market-based approach to free speech than 30, 40 years ago. But college students today have a support free speech at much higher levels than people over 40 do. So it's, it's give us it, an example of that. How would you? How do college students today uh, uh, are more interested in free speech than people? Well, I mean, I think I, I see it all the time at, at Wesleyan, uh, which is uh, you know we 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 help define political correctness with the movie PCU in the nineties. Um, but I see it all the time at people entertaining ideas that are uncongenial. That uh, thinkers who with whom they disagree, they read with attention and 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 interest. Uh, I see speakers coming to campus uh, uh, all the time who uh, have something to say that many people find upsetting. Um, the, be the example, you know, of this now several years ago with Justice Scalia coming to Wesleyan's campus, um, there were some faculty members who recommended to me that we invite uh, Justice Scalia for our free speech lecture. Actually, we have a lecture every year, the Hugo Black lecture, and, and it's, a, it's in celebration of free speech. So they, uh, I get a note from the faculty committee saying, Roth, we want you to invite Justice Scalia. And I, I thought they were baiting me. I thought the, the, these guys don't like Scalia. They know that I don't like Scalia, so they want to see if I'll listen to their recommendation. And so this is the kind of thing faculty does to presidents. And, <laughs> um, and, um, and so... I figured I'll invite Justice Scalia because he won't come. <laughs> um, and wrong again. Uh, wrong again. <laughs> so because I thought he he was he's very busy. We often try to get Supreme Court justices to come, and they're very busy, so they don't come. Um, anyway, he wrote me back. Very odd to me. He said, "I'm going to come to Wesleyan because Larry Lessig was there two years ago, and he had a great time on your campus." Now, Larry Lessig is pretty far to the left, um, and and he did have a great time on our campus, uh, <laughs> and he gave a great talk. And so, you know, Scalia says, here I come, I'll spend the day. And, um, and I had this dilemma because I think Justice Scalia did more harm to the interpretation of the American Constitution than anyone else since the late 1800s and maybe beyond. Um, and on the other hand, um, I was the host. I had to introduce him. That was the way the, the, the thing worked. So if I hadn't been the host, I would have joined my colleagues, some of whom are in the room, who protested that event. They stood outside and banged on drums and held signs. And, and I would have been out there too, but I had to introduce <laughs> them. Um, and so I decided that my job was to create a platform through which obviously a very influential and important interpreter of the American Constitution and freedom of speech could, could make his case and that my colleagues and, their, and our students could question him vigorously. And I, and I gave the introduction. I snuck a little quotation from Leonard Levy, a great historian of the American founding who disagreed strongly with Scalia. Only he got it, and he did. <laughs> um, uh, and he gave a talk which people objected to, in some cases, vociferously. The protesters were outside. The talk went on. Um, he spent the day on campus having intense interactions with our students. 
I thought that was a victory. Now, I would rather not say victory for free speech because I don't think that that's the issue. It was a victory for education. Mm -hmm. I know some people learn to have a conversation with, with Justice Scalia. Maybe Justice Scalia learned something from our students. I, I'm not so sure. But in any case, they, they actually worked together in a way where they expressed their political views in the demonstrations. They had substantive discussions about uh, uh, the law and politics. Um, and I think we're a better campus for it. And I hope that kind of thing, I mean, it happens all the time in American college campuses. This doesn't get reported on. Now, if Justice Scalia had come and we had shut it down, it would have been reported on. <laughs> um, and and I, I think that um, Charles Murray's, you know, was treated very badly at Middlebury. I think it was a it was a disgrace to the to the students there and to the and to the college. And, and, and they've tried to make amends. Uh, but Charles Murray spoke at probably 15 or 20 schools that year. And you didn't read about that. So I think that the, 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 um, the tendency to try to find examples where students disappoint us is a, is a symptom of a, of a weak approach to teaching. We have to deal with the students as they are. And some of them don't think free speech is the most important value. They may be right, actually. There are other values that are also very important that they, they've come to appreciate. That we have to engage them where they are and make sure we're able to introduce to them views they wouldn't find on their own. So, Michael, is it fair to conclude from your comments that the press has been somewhat unfair in depicting kids as wanting to shut down engaged debate? Well, I, you know, I, I hate to join the chorus of like crit criticizing the press when we live under a regime that that is, you know, puts the press and booksellers and other under enormous pressure. So, I mean, I think there is a free speech crisis in this country. It's, be, it's, it's led by a president who calls the press the enemy of the people and by restrictions on what people can study and who can come into the country. I mean, I think there's an enormous crisis. It's led by an authoritarian government yeah. that um, is, is extraordinarily dangerous and will be even more dangerous in the months to come uh, in the impeachment process. So I do think there's a lot to worry about. Um, I see my job as, as, as not dismissing the press accounts, but saying, listen, sure, there's some things that need correction, um, but there's a lot of good things happening in American colleges and universities as we struggle to become more inclusive, uh, more, more dynamic in our research, more relevant to the students' lives after they graduate, um, and, and um, at places where people can learn as much as possible. It, it, just as an aside, the other day uh, for the podcast, I interviewed Mo Rocca, who's a CBS morning correspondent. Uh -huh. And I was telling him I was reading the book and I was telling him about the example about, they talked about the press, talked about Middlebury and not about Franklin and Marshall where right. it went totally differently. And Mo Rocca said, ooh, I did that piece for CBS <laughs> and I didn't think to find other colleges where Charles Murray went to speak. I mean, he's on a tour. He's on a he's like Bob Dylan. Um, you know, he has he has no new material. No, Bob Dylan has more new material. Uh, um, you know, he's on a tour for the American Enterprise Institute. Pays. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they figure it out. That, and that's I don't know. That's 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 their business. But but uh, that is surprising to me that he didn't think to ask where else did he see. He's because even in the press that I read, he, he was at Columbia within a month or two, and and he gave a talk and that. And people should object. People can protest, but um, but I think like at our event, people did protest, but the event took place, and then people can make their own conclusions. Now I do not think that that should happen for everything. 
I mean, that's the so my the, the, I sound just now like a free speech market kind of person. I actually think there are some things we should not allow on campus. Uh, child pornography is easy. Nobody's advocating for that right now. But um, but I, I, my uh, my story of, of coming to terms with these issues was as a young assistant professor in Claremont, California. I heard the story about the president of Pomona College, uh, David Alexander, um, who found out that there was a Nazi group had rent, that, that had rented space on Pomona's campus. Um, they had an innocuous name for their uh, history journal. Like for American Justice Yeah, or something, something like that. Yeah. And, and there was an Orange County neo-Nazi group. And he found out. He went over and said, get off the campus. And the attorneys, of course, were like, no, you can't do that. And they said, we're going to sue you. He said, yeah, of course you're going to sue me. It's America. Everyone sues everyone. Um, and, and, and I thought, this is a, that's a hero. You know, that you don't want to be a, a, a platform from any, any kind of hateful disruptive and anti-educational intimidation. Um, and, and sometimes you have to make those judgments. And, you, and, and as teachers, we do this all the time. We ask ourselves, I'm sure, am I afraid of that idea because it might be true? Or am I going to protect my students from an idea because that's actually not really an idea? It's just a, it, it's an exercise of intimidation or uh, abuse against some of our students. So Michael, what's the hardest decision you've had to make in your years here at Wesleyan around free speech? Aye. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the, the, some of the hardest things I've had to, decisions like, yeah, I guess they are in a way, they're decisions. I, I think I see, uh, I saw Dean Mike here in the audience who's uh, vice president for student life at Wesleyan. And we've both been at places uh, like, like, like now, like I, I'm giving a talk or something and there'll be student protesters and, and I'll, there have been times where I've been surrounded, surrounded by student protesters, but I have a big mouth and I can still talk, and I, so I still give the talk, but it's extremely stressful. You know, nobody should yeah. have too much sympathy. I'm, I'm overpaid and underworked and all that, but still, it's very stressful, and there are times after those events, or at those events, when people seem to be just getting to the edge of what's allowed in protest. Mm -hmm. I'll say to, you know, uh, to Dean Mike, oh, those, those students, they're broken the rules, and he's like, yes, yeah, right, we'll talk tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And and there are times when like so last year when there are these kinds of protests the 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 uh the uh protest of uh, one of the days they took out megaphones and I couldn't give the talk. That was a clear violation. We had to show those students that that wasn't just protest, that was inhibiting. That was a it's called the heckler's veto. You 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 keep people from hearing anything. And we could let them make their points. Um without letting them prevent anyone else from speaking. And I think that's, that's, that's a hard judgment call to make sometimes as to what, uh, what, you, should invite, uh, what you should invite to the campus. Uh, I'll give you two quick other examples, if I may. Um, so uh, the wonderful philosopher used to be uh, Professor Wesleyan Judith Butler was uh, to give a talk in New York. She's a, a sometime supporter of uh, the uh, BDS movement. I've been a vocal opponent of the BDS movement in the press. And I saw that uh, Judith was going to give a talk, at, maybe at CUNY, and the talk was canceled because some people found out she's associated with BDS, so they canceled the talk. It was kind of a big deal. And so BDS I, is the, uh, uh, the, uh, the boycott, divest, and sanction uh, Israel. They keep not have anything to do with uh, Israel. So I uh, wrote to Judy, uh, but I've known her a long time, and said, "Why don't you come to Wesleyan and give that talk?" Because although I disagreed with the talk and, 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 and or disagreed with some of her positions, she's very nuanced. Um, and, and 
and it was so it's not about the the content. It was about that she should have a platform for making that argument. And uh, when we had an incident on campus where a conservative student published an op-ed critical of the Black Matter Black Lives Matter movement, I actually thought that was an op-ed that people have to deal with that shouldn't be censored. Um, but I also invited Jelani Cobb to speak at Wesleyan because he wrote a piece around that time called uh, Free Speech Talk is Often Racist Talk uh, Masked. So I called him up and said, why don't you come and make that argument at Wesleyan? And many of the students at Wesleyan at the time who thought I was protecting speech at the expense of, of students of color, um, they were surprised that I invited Jelani Cobb, who didn't seem to agree with me. We actually didn't agree. Um, and... I think that modeling those kinds of disagreements from which we can all learn. I learn a lot from Jelani Cobb. I read him now with, you know, with great attention and, and, and interest. And I hope he learned from his visit to Wesleyan uh, because that's what we're really about. We're not about being a platform for free speech. We're about being an institution of education. So some of the tensions that are arising on campuses are ramifications of the change in the student population that has admirably occurred on a lot of campuses. So it used to be that it was referred to as affirmative action. Um, and that word seems to be out of favor. And the word that the words that seem to be used more now are inclusion and equality. Mm -hmm. uh, why the shift and what do those words mean? So in the in the first section of uh, of safe enough spaces, I talk about the, sh the the evolution of talk from affirmative action to equity and inclusion, and the, in the middle there's probably diversity. So we we had affirmative action officers, and then we had a vice president for diversity, and now a vice president for equity and inclusion. And I think what happened was that the emphasis on access um, was so fraught because there are two main streams of thinking about how to create more access to underrepresented groups. One stream is uh, this historical injustice and the, and the people who belong to the group that had been historically discriminated against should get some advantage in the process for access. Right. The other stream is um, uh, diversity is actually more educational than uh, less diversity. So it's not, we're not doing that to provide- To everyone. Yeah, for everyone. Right. We're not doing this to provide the, the, the aggrieved group with access. We're doing it because it's good for everyone to have more diversity. And in the, in the court decisions move to that second stream. The, 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 tra the challenge is for a highly selective schools like Wesleyan and, and, and uh, the Ivies and, and, and several other places, you know, you the, the the first thousand people who get rejected are you you are not any worse uh, or any have less they don't have less qualifications than the last thousand people you accepted. You just can't show rationally why those people are go, getting right. accepted and the others not. It, it it resembles a lottery in many ways. And I apologize to the admissions people who are here. But I, I, I think it's very hard. <laughs> who spend I, a gazillion hours. Yeah, they do the best out. they can. But I think, you know, we could admit. Uh, a whole nother class of, of frosh, uh, 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 and they would do just as well as the class that right. we have. Um, and so it's just fraught to say who deserves to be there. What's much less fraught, and I think in some ways more important, because there are many seats at many different schools, what's, what's, what's less fraught is figuring out what, do, what does it take for students to feel fully included? Mm. Not that you just got in, but what does it mean that you have access to all the resources of the institution? 
And we've become, I, I speak for myself, I've, I've become more aware of my own blind spots, which, you know, like all blind spots, once you become aware of them, you're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that. Like that people didn't have food during break. Mm. You know, uh, it, 20 years ago, if someone said to me when I was a, a professor, well, the students don't have food during break, I think, well, they have a full scholarship, they have room and board, that's pretty good. But actually, we have a significant number of students who are homeless, but for the university. So how do we manage to, to support them if we actually think that they, we, they, they should have full benefits from the education we offer? If they're hungry, we all know this, right? If they're hungry, they're not going to learn as much. And we were pushed to this position by a student at Wesleyan uh, a couple of years ago. She said, uh, we should do this at Wesleyan. And we were like, yeah, I wonder if we should, but we should figure it out. Anyway, she went around and she went to all the her people who live in the houses at Wesleyan and said, are you going home for Christmas? And I said, yeah. And she said, can I have all the food in your refrigerator? And I said, yeah, well, we have four cases of beer and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and hamburgers and, and two potatoes. <laughs> and so she created a food pantry on her own. Hmm. And, and it was very obvious that people really needed this. Now, it was probably already obvious to, to some of the people in this room, some of my colleagues who, who saw this more clearly. But what I've seen is we, we sometimes underestimate what it means to have full access to the resources of the institution. And so giving someone a chance to be there is great. But if you say, oh, now you have a chance to be there, it's great, and you're in the intro chemistry class, but the people next to you actually had a chemistry course much like that in high school, and you have never seen anything like this before, you're not, you don't have an equal opportunity to learn. So we have to figure, so we created something called WESMAS, which is for students from underrepresented groups who want to pursue work in the sciences, so that we can help them have full access to the benefits of the school. Because we think they, they deserve to be there as much as that kid went to a fancy high school. But they, they have not had the same advantages as, as some of the, the wealthier students or the ones who went to fancier places. And this must show up in graduation rates at schools that aren't getting it right. Well, it's so interesting you say that because Wesleyan um, has for many, many years and to its uh, lasting credit has had this reputation for taking chances on students. And, and that's admirable, because if we wanted to have the best graduation rate in the country, we just have to behave like WashU, just to name one school. Um, or, well, I won't name Williams, but, um, but, but if you wanted to have a graduation rate that's really high, you, would, you admit kids who you don't, who've just never failed at anything. Um, so what we, our admissions office has been doing this for a long time, they admit students who by various metrics, are not predicted to do as well as that student went to a fancy place. But in fact, our low-income students graduate at higher rates than the average student at Wesleyan. And I attribute that to the admissions office, to be sure, because they find people with enormous potential but who haven't been able to display it yet. But I also attribute it to the faculty who care so deeply that the students in their classroom are successful. I mean, that's one thing about being at a place that cares about teaching like Wesleyan. Our faculty, they aren't trying to weed out the students. They're trying to figure out how to have a great garden of students. So the, we're, we're running out of time. Sorry. We're, no, no, that's good. That's, that's why you're here. You're the speaker, Michael. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> this is good. Um, so I want to get to the topic of political correctness because... Um, well, well, I'll read something that you had here, which I, I think is sets the stage. The strange thing about political correctness is that it seems to have lots of opponents and no supporters. 
wrote Roger Ebert in his 1994 review of the film PCU. And no one ever describes themselves as politically correct, yet somehow the movement thrives. So again, common currency of criticism is that political correctness, inclusion, equity, all these nice words you're using, are creating trigger points and other things that are actually creating a kind of tyranny around conversation. How would you speak to that? I, I think this is a, an illusion that has been that, that has been perpetuated by the right wing and then embraced by liberals who feel outflanked by progressive students. Um, wow! And I put myself in that category sometimes <laughs> because I, I'm often unflanked, outflanked by progressive students. But it's not because they're politically correct; it's because they have different ideas than mine, and right. and, they, and 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 they debate them sometimes vigorously. It is certainly the case that on many campuses, like in many um, uh, so, so social situations, I suppose, that people are afraid to speak their minds. But that's because they're afraid, not because there's tyranny. I mean, they're, they, they, they don't want to get called a name. Oh, well, that's just too bad. Why don't they get more courage? It's the problem isn't that people are being uh, uh, tyrannical in their views. The problem is that other folks are afraid to get uh, their ideas attacked. Now, I, I, I think that um, it's not that hard. I see it in my classes all the time to s try to get uh, uh, a space in your classroom where people can actually experiment with ideas and say things that other people get upset by and then continue the conversation. Um, and be friends. So, excuse me? And be friends. And be friends or at least be friendly. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I don't want them all to be friends. I mean, you know, some people, they really do disagree about things that matter so deeply. They're not going to they're not going to get over it. But I think that this idea that that students are fragile and that they can't deal with this stuff, I think it's 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 just wrong headed because our students are dealing with massive inequality. They're dealing with uh, climate catastrophe. They're dealing with um, a government that is, you know, veering towards uh, ethno-nationalism. Um, and, and they know they're dealing with all mm -hmm. these things. And a, and a winner-take-all economy that's quite frightening uh, if you're a young person who's not sure exactly what you want to do uh, in your working life. I, I think like, the notion about trigger warnings is completely uh, inflated. I talked to faculty years ago when this was in high currency, asked them if they ever felt forced to give trigger warnings. I, I couldn't find a single person. I, I tell the story of uh, a student I had when I was a, a college president in, in California at an art school where anything goes, right, um, in San Francisco. And I had shown a film, um, Distant Voices Still Lives, a beautiful film by Terrence Davies. And um, afterwards, one of my students comes up to me and says, Roth, I can't believe you showed that film. My God, it was, oh, my God. And I said, what happened? What happened? He goes, my father used to beat the hell out of me. And I stopped in my tracks because the film is devastatingly brutal about patriarchal violence. I mean, I mean, the father beats the kids mercilessly. And so I looked at this boy who was wrought, you know, I mean, he brought up. And, and I said, I'm... I, I'm sorry. I, I I don't I I'm I, I don't know what I should have done. Would you have preferred not to see the film? And he looks at me and says, Roth, you're just such a jerk. <laughs> of course I wanted to see the film. It's a beautiful freaking film. I said, but what do you want me to, to have done? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. And he stormed off. And I thought to myself, 
Well, maybe what I should just do is say, you know, we're going to see films in this class that some of you are going to find cut so deeply that it'll be really challenging that week. And just, you know, that's it. No, no big deal. Not triggered, trauma, I don't know. But just give them some context. And I teach those films still. I had a, we, Kari and I had dinner with the seniors last year, and a woman came up to me and said, you know, I had your film classes of fr Frosh. And I said, oh, do you like it? Yeah, oh, it was great, yeah. But the first week, I went into the field and I just wept. And I said, oh, wow, that's great. And she said, no. <laughs> because the it was a film about uh, the death camps. And pe people are prepared if you help them get ready. Our job as teachers is not to complain about the students. Anytime a teacher complains about the students, they're actually just confessing that they can't teach those people. That's the teacher's problem. Mm. We have to meet the students where they are and figure out how to get them to another place. But if we are, if, if we're just knocking our heads against them and say, well, they're, they're spoiled, they're, they're, um, they're, they're close-minded, they don't care about excellence, or whatever the phrase is these days. If that's our attitude, we should get out of the classroom. Let someone get in the classroom who's ready to teach the people we have in the room. So as a last question before we open it to question, and in the um, commitment to open debate, yes. what would someone who disagrees with you say that you think has debatable merit? Well, I think that, um, I'll take two sides. One, so the free speech, the people who are more uh, f uh, free speech absolutists, what I call them, uh, probably don't like that phrase, but it's that they, they, defend, they think they're defending free speech more uh, fully than I. They would say, Roth, you, how do you know you're making the right judgment? You know, in other words, mm -hmm. uh, you said Scalia. Who are you to pick? Right. You, you said Scalia is fine, but the Nazis uh, aren't. Well, some people would have told you you couldn't have had Scalia. How do you make those judgments? And I think that's a valid question. And the answer is the way we always make them in a sloppy way with stories and criteria that we use mostly ad hoc to try to explain our reasoning and, and in, a, in, a, in a particular community. And that's as good as it gets. That's the pragmatist view. There isn't a litmus test. There isn't a, there isn't a formula. You have to actually provide reasons. It's not arbitrary. You provide reasons, you provide narratives, and you, have, and you put it in context. But there are people who think that's not good enough. And, and that's, I, I think that is debatable, and we, and, we, and we debate. And then there are people who really think that I am painting too rosy a picture of college campuses, that, that, that professors are afraid to speak their mind and that students are afraid to have arguments. And I think that rather than just cultivate that fear as a vehicle for writing books and, and op-ed pieces, I would rather ask people to step up and be more courageous. I think as a teacher, that's just a better thing to do. Uh Michael, thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book, and thank you for writing a book that I believe does contribute to the mission of higher education. And at the end of the book, um, you have a quote uh, that is, when a community is marked by intellectual humility, empathy, trust, and curiosity, Viewpoint diversity gives rise to engaged and civil debate, constructive disagreement, and shared progress towards truth. I am 
very optimistic that your book will lead to the kind of conversations that will lead to more communities of that quality. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by LitHub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and LitHub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.